I'm Sevis from Maryland, frequently seen lurking around castle battlements and stealing shrouds from sinister graveyards. And I'm La from New Zealand, who never wears anything under a dress, but also doesn't really mind the smell of garlic. We are Hammerama, the international podcast which loves vampires. Why cunningly disguise in our identities with anagrams which no one will ever guess as we walk around dry ice machines in our negligees. Our opening track is the wonderful theme from the House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reber Clark. Our film for discussion this time is The Vampire Lovers from 1970, starring Ingrid Pitt, Madeline Smith, and one of Hammerama's patron saints, Peter Cushing. Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. Vampire lovers, perverted creatures of the night, find their victims everywhere. The unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. The sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real terrifying nightmares. There was a cat! A cat! A huge cat! For God's sake, save her! No rest for the vampire lovers. No escape till their evil hearts are still for all eternity. If one remains, yes, even one, there will be thousands more. Beware. Beware the cold caress, the kiss that kills. Beware the vampire lovers. But it gets even better because this episode we are joined by two horror scholars who may very well show us up to be the charlatans and amateurs we clearly are. Just arriving at General Spielsdorf's ball, may we present the Condesses of the Classic Era, the Podesses of the Decades of Horror cast, Daphne Maneri-Ernsdorf. Hello, it's so great to be here. And Whitney Koyatsu. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our humble podcast, Enter Freely and of Your Own Will. <laughs> yes, what thank an, you so much. What an intro. Wow. I think that's as good as it's ever <laughs> going to get. You'd never guess that we ad-libbed that entire thing. Part of the reason that we were so keen to get you guys on is that, Daphne, I don't know if you remember or not, but several months ago, you and I got into a messenger conversation about horror films which maybe you could say don't necessarily cater for a female audience and I was really interested to know how a female fan what sort of mindset they actually got into to appreciate or sometimes even watch films like this I don't know if you remember the conversation or not but you had some interesting things to say about I do remember that conversation and um, yeah I uh I remember really appreciating having to think about it. (laughs) Mm. Think of it when you asked me that. And I've actually thought about it um, off and on since then. I feel like having that conversation with you is kind of, in addition to doing the podcast with, with Whitney and the guys watching movies differently and kind of seeing how, um, how they've affected me and how they kind of Mm. show us things that um, maybe we didn't know about ourselves or, uh, it sounds deeper than I mean when I'm talking about hammer or whatever, but um, I but I think it's true. It, it's uh, it's made me think a lot about um, movies and being a woman and depiction and representation in horror films, and I like that. So thanks mm. for asking me about it. <laughs> it's something that I've always wondered about. I know obviously these films are made in a in a certain time, and there were certain attitudes. Not all of them great. 
And obviously, you and Whitney cover a, a massive range of films over the decades of horror. And I just wonder what it's like as women to have to analyse them. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to get your perspective on that as we go on, because I think I could say we've maybe picked an, an interesting one to discuss and really looking forward to what you guys think of it. And listeners would have heard more about Whitney's knowledge of horror cinema and mythology and skills as a makeup artist when I interviewed her on episode 118 of the Diecast Movie Podcast Show. But before we talk about the movie itself, this is the synopsis of The Vampire Lovers. The resignation letter of Gretchen the Maid, 1790. Dear Mr. Morton, I really didn't mind suddenly having to unmake the guest room when the general's niece, Laura, died, or having to quickly make it up again when a new guest, Carmilla, suddenly arrived without any warning. I didn't even mind having to wear that outrageous bonnet, or place, remove, and then replace reeking garlic flowers in Miss Emma's room no less than five times, while just about everyone else in the household stood there and argued about it. I was used to deflecting Mr. Renton's unwanted advances, so having Miss Carmilla make a pass at me was also all in a day's work. But the night of her disappearance was the final straw. Woken in the early hours by screams and the sound of a vase shattering, I found the dead body of Mademoiselle Peridot lying on the stairs with what appeared to be a pair of sharp teeth lying on top of her chest. Terrified, I ran to Miss Carmilla's room, only to find Mr. Renton horribly murdered on her bed. Despite suffering from shock, I was then expected to clear the stairway, sweep up the broken bars, bandage Mr. Carl's hand after he held his dagger by the pointy end, and then make breakfast for you, the General, and Baron Hartog when you finally arrived back. Added to all this, the recent mysterious deaths of young women in the region have convinced me to move to London and begin a new life, far away from these superstitious goings-on and perpetual full moons. Unfortunately, a Romany fortune teller tells me that in 182 years' time, a descendant of mine with a very strong family resemblance called Anna Bryant will become entangled in a plot to resurrect an undead Transylvanian nobleman in some place called Chelsea. Apparently she will also dig the music pins, whatever that means. Anyway, Gustav has been fed and Mr. Carl's dagger has been cleaned and left on the whole table, right next to my silly hat. Yours faithfully, Gretchen. P.S. The fortune teller also wants General Spielsdorf to know that next time he holds a ball, he should try and remember that Strauss won't actually write his waltzes for another 50 years, and that tennis courts won't be invented for another century. Okay, guys, is that the movie that we all watched? It's exactly the movie, yes. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Janet Key, who played Gretchen the Maid, and she popped up in Dracula <laughs> AD 1972, which I, I really love. So let's, let's go straight on to our initial thoughts. And I'm going to pick one of our guests first, Whitney. What, oh uh, what initial thoughts do you have about The Vampire Lovers? Well, this one is so different to me. Never seen it before. And I'm glad that you chose this one, you guys chose this one because there are a lot of elements in here that are controversial um, in the relationships with um, among women and even stuff when people talk about today versus what has been around for, for years um, that's inside and outside of entertainment is um, what is consent in relationships. And then when we really like go back and look at vampirism and especially women, and then seeing um, a certain character like Marcella or Camilla later on, like she's she's very much of a seductive woman, but also 
there's parts of her where as a woman, I look at her and then we hear her say certain things. Maybe Daphne can um, echo with me if she feels the same way. I don't know. But it's just when she really has this longing of wanting someone with her, but mostly it is with another woman. And mm -hmm. th that's not something that I have been used to in entertainment, especially of that era. So it was really, it was really neat to see in a different time. That's what I have to say so far. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I think maybe I'd hazard that maybe we're all thinking along similar lines, but we'll find out because Daphne, what are your initial thoughts on the vampire lovers? Uh, my initial thoughts were uh, kind of pretty similar, actually, to Whitney's, some of the things she brought up. I found myself thinking a lot about what people must have thought about it at the time and how it definitely was, you know, like an exploitation film that mm -hmm. that Hammer was taking, you know, like, OK, we're, we're losing these some of these censoring requirements and mm -hmm. and how are we going to get out there and, and get some attention? And and so including that in there. Um, as part of it, but also really loving the the women in it and that a lot of the women had some agency, regardless of whose gaze we were looking at. And I just, I, I love Ingrid Pitt. I love seeing women that have different strengths and can be bad or good. And so I kind of was looking at it, looking at it that way. I don't remember when I saw it the first time, but I know I have seen it. And with a lot of Hammer movies, I have had the same reaction when I first saw them as a young person. It was like, wow, this is sex. You know, like, whoa, what is this? Because that's not what... Um, we saw in America at that time. And mm. I think even the stuff that I saw was probably an American cut. So I don't know if I saw everything until I went back and watched them, you know, as an older person, what, what from the VHSs I rented, it probably didn't have a bunch of stuff. So um, I kind of look at it that way, but I really like this film and I'm always taken aback with the, the atmosphere in the, in the Hammer movies. And this one definitely has that. I really liked it. I thought it was great. I'm immensely relieved. Of, the thing I was most afraid of was that we might have made you guys watch a film that you hated. But you sound reasonably positive so far. So very relieved <laughs> to hear that. Now, Steve, you're up. I actually saw this one when I was a teenager and it was on TV. So I saw an edited version. So it was interesting years later, decades later, when I finally saw the um the full version and it was able to see it's like oh now i get an idea because i was when i saw as a teenager i was literally i hate to say i was bored with it it was just kind of maybe it was because it was late at night i was not in the right frame of mind but i was just like okay yeah it's but got the car didn't really interest me as much then when i was like 14 15 years old as it does nowadays so when i was watching it now i enjoyed it a lot more but I also felt that it was, for me, it was rather gratuitous and it was just there to be there. It sits in the plot and it makes sense. I'm fine with it. But when, if it's just there for the sake of titillation or whatever, to me, it doesn't serve a purpose or a point. The film is kind of like really good in a lot of aspects, but it just goes a little bit too far for me on that line. It makes sense in some ways, but for me, you know, maybe I'm a prude. I don't know. <laughs> it's an exploitation film. Hmm. That, yeah. That's yeah, I you're right. I mean, you're right about that. <laughs> the historical reasons why uh, there is so much nudity are pretty well known, and we don't need to go over them again. But as Daphne mentioned, the changes in censorship and everything mm -hmm. else, those are good points, Stephen. That kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about, and that is that I think that the vampire lovers is sort of perched between two stools, but manages not to fall through the middle. Because you've got the exploitation intentions of the producers, Harry Fine and Michael Style, and the distributor AIP. So you had those elements that were pushing for the exploitation side. And then you've got the sort of more worthy aspirations of the director, Roy Ward Baker. And Baker particularly was pushing against the exploitation side. He wanted to tell a story. He wanted to adapt Sheridan Le Fanu's novella Carmilla and make the best film that he possibly could. But as a spotty hormonal teenager, 
unlike Steve, I saw the uncut version late one night when thankfully my parents <laughs> had gone to bed. <laughs> and it's quite funny. I was staying with my dad last week when I rewatched this film for this podcast. <laughs> And this time I got up before he did to watch The Vampire Lovers again, because no matter how old you get, it's not a film you want to watch with your parents ever, mm-hmm. despite, it's, despite <laughs> you know, it's really good points. As, a, as an older viewer, I can also appreciate that it's a surprisingly faithful adaptation of the source novel. And I really appreciate that. So I I sort of believe that this film is a tug of war between the sensationalism and the artistic validity. But in my opinion, somehow both sides win. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good description. You you don't want to watch your parents. I don't want to watch this movie with my children. They're all adults, but it's like, (laughs) I I would just feel weird saying like, hey, Ben, Patrick, let's go watch The Vampire Lover. I'm just sorry. You know, I just don't want to be watching it with my adult children at Mm. all. Yeah, I agree with you, but I'm looking at it from a different perspective. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I could watch it with my cats without any. (laughs) That was something. It's natural to want to watch something like this a little bit more alone because of the elements that are involved. I mean, it's it, it's personal, you know, there, there's mm. like, like you guys are saying, it's an exploitation film, but also there's just a lot of elements, like even not just as a daughter, just as a friend, or even I'm like, even if someone said, hey, Whitney, you want to watch this movie with me? I'm like, mm, uh, maybe <laughs> not. But you watch it, I watch it, and we can talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> the last time I watched this with a group of friends, male and female, I mm. think they were kind of egging me on. They said, oh, Al, put on one of those notorious lesbian vampire films. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And I think actually a couple of them fell asleep because I don't think they were prepared for the fact that, as I say, this is a reasonably faithful adaptation of a novella which actually came out before Dracula was even written. I forget how many years exactly before Dracula came out. So they were maybe (laughs) not prepared for the fact that it is, from Roy Ward Baker's point of view, an attempt to tell a classical story. I might have a weird take. I know everybody always says that that lesbian vampire film. Mm-hmm. And and I don't really look at it as a lesbian vampire film. I look at it as Camilla being bisexual. I mean, she's pretty much a predator going for different people. She falls in love with Emma. The other characters, I don't see them as being lesbians. I just see them as being people that fall underneath her spell. So I don't know. Maybe it's me. I just I, I look at it as her being bisexual, whatever, you know, because Emma still loves men. She even says that many times during the thing. I'm like, oh, you'll, what if I find a guy and that kind of stuff? Will you be jealous? To me, it's just a film of vampire falls in love, but the other people are underneath her power. Well, it sounds like um, Roy Ward Baker and the other people involved succeeded in wanting to get that, that part of it across because mm. um, it is a story. And I, I like your description of the tug of war and the tension in Alistair, mm. because um, that's definitely there. And I think it kind of made me think more about when I was watching it of like, wow, Ingrid Pitt, eventually her character has a lot of depth and layers to it that um, it takes a while for it to get to. And I, I like the slow burn of it. And I can see where some people would if who's not, especially not into gothic horror, maybe would not get into it or even fall asleep like your friends. But she definitely plays it really well with uh, depth and um, more character. And I do, it makes me think, is she really falling in love? Is she kind of a victim in some of the way, in some ways? Um, Emma loves her, but doesn't really understand what kind of love she has. And I, I feel like in some ways, even though this was written by a man and directed by a man, and definitely, you know, it's definitely from a male perspective, the whole story, but Ingrid Pitt and um, yeah. Madeline Smith yeah. and um, also uh, Mademoiselle um, 
Peridot, I felt like they did a really good job expressing being women, you know, <laughs> or at least some one type of woman. I definitely got like a feminine vibe from them that was genuine. And I feel like I could still get some of the story from these about these characters through through their portrayal. And um I was when I was watching it, I was kind of thinking like, wow, what's going on? There's this is an exploitation movie, but um the story is really well done and the actors are doing a really great job. And um I think that's part of for me, maybe part of the attraction to it is there's so much more going on there if you're willing to look or if you're interested than you might have heard in the marketing or Absolutely. Just to justify myself, Steve, it's known as the notorious lesbian vampire film, but I don't necessarily see it that way myself personally. I think Camila is pansexual when it suits her because above everything else, she's a predator. Apparently in the wild, there are certain predators who will fix their prey in certain species with a gaze, the sort of hypnotic gaze before they attack. And I've even heard that described as a loving gaze. Mm. Um, and watching the vampire lovers, it reminds me very strongly of that. I mean, obviously there is a sexual element, but I think perhaps it's part of the way that Carmela survives. Obviously she needs blood like every living or, or undead creature. She needs to sustain her own existence. Mm-hmm. Whitney, did you have anything to add to that conversation thread? Yeah, so when Daphne was mentioning Carmilla, Marcella, her needing to survive and uh, her as a, the character among the other women um, manifesting into her dreams as that predator, I, I just can't get over those screams. Like I had to turn the volume down when I was listening to it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is Hammer. I have to turn the volume down when there's screams because they're just very loud and it's, it's notorious. So I love it. it. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's notorious in this kind of movie, but it's just just the impact of knowing how vulnerable someone wakes up from those dreams just in general like dreamlike state is so vulnerable for anyone when they have something of that nature. I just loved it. <laughs> Tip of steel, really, mm-hmm. Laura. I mean, that has to be one of the top 10 screams in any mm-hmm. horror movie I've ever heard because that volume and length, you'd be amazed if anybody in the neighborhood would be asleep still. And Right. No, it's just with the vampire mythology in general, like knowing mm-hmm. that there's that gaze in that hypnotic state that's really been an impact in ongoing mythologies of vampirism and i just love seeing the smallest things but they're like the bigger things when it when it comes to something animalistic like just seeing the cat in the dreams in that dream state that's that's the supernatural element that's the feminine element that's that's the stuff that i see that i think may be small to others but i think is a big deal that, yeah. That's a powerful thing, that vulnerability and those sequences. As soon as you said vulnerability, I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly it. Because I was struck with how vulnerable Carmela was. And she actually showed quite a bit of vulnerability. You saw her falling in love with Emma. I can yes. really feel like she wanted to be, when she said, I'm taking you, it was more as an equal, not as a victim mm-hmm. or something like that. And so I feel like when she was interacting with Emma, she's vulnerable. She's expressing herself and her love for Emma and and showing herself to her essentially. And that's very intimate. I feel like they really got the intimacy across in a really, I felt like real way, even in this exploitation movie. And yeah, that's, you're absolutely right there, Whitney. It's even when she was, when they were reading and there was a funeral procession from the person that she killed um, going by and she just couldn't handle the, the religious chanting and things going on. I actually felt like she was being hurt there and she was showing that to you. Like, I don't think she was asking Emma to hold her because she was trying to Maybe she wanted to get a little bit closer, but it was, she wanted that comfort. So yeah. yeah. But I just remember being really struck by that. I'm actually really glad that you mentioned that because that's another side where, you know, we could see Carmilla as human because of how she is speaking. Mm -hmm. Like she says she doesn't like death. Mm -hmm. Um, She makes this, this statement to Emma 
Mm -hmm. uh, basically saying how she's uncomfortable with it. But I feel like that's her echoing her own feelings about being alone. Because in the end, like the dark reality is that Every, this happens there was even you have to die everyone dies or something like that mm -hmm. like that's that's the truth that's a hard mm -hmm. almost scary truth and mm -hmm. for for someone that's like a predatorial character a vampire or having that human side like those are real feelings you know and and those hit us sometimes in reality and it doesn't matter if it's like a if you're looking at a partner love interest friends family like that hits mm -hmm. you. That's real. Those are real emotions put into a movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I feel like with a vampire, you really, you really get that because you see, you see the predator because you know, like vampires are bad, they're sex, uh, mm -hmm. you know, predatory, but you're right. The loneliness of being alive forever and, um, you know, having to feed off of and being, uh, you know, isolated. Those are deep things. And here they are in a Hammer movie. Yes. <laughs> the notorious lesbian Hammer vampire movie. <laughs> well, Steve, I um, warned you that we were going to be showing up. You guys are really bringing it. Thank you. As you say, there's a lot more here than people imagine. The scene with Pepper Steele screaming the house down. I, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced sleep paralysis. It sort of made me think of that as well, that half asleep, half awake state where you literally can't move because your body's asleep, but your mind is awake. It's a very distressing experience. It's not uncommon. You may have experienced it. I think um, it's common for some people. I mean, I can't hmm. say as someone with chronic illness, like I've experienced it a few times in my life. That's a really uncomfortable and scary experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sure is. Yes. Yeah, so once again, tapping into all kinds of deeper things. Can I say something about the screaming? You know, like you were saying, it was so loud. Everybody heard it, came running. And it was clearly something horrible was happening. But uh, Carmila didn't come out. And mm. um, so when the general went, like when they went to go wake her up, well, she must have been so frightened by what's going on. And there was no, no sound or nothing behind the door. And they're like, well, let her sleep. I just thought that's really good start to start pointing out that maybe these characters are starting to go, well, why didn't she wake up? She's right next door, you know, or whatever that I just remember that struck me that got my attention is, yeah, that's kind of strange <laughs> that she didn't wake yeah. up because that was really blood curdling scream. It just happened. There. Totally. totally. Yes. And, and also, I just want to say how sad it is that Pippa Steele only lived to the age of 44 which is really sad. One thing I want to add on when you were talking about the scream and how the reaction, Peter Cushing's character, the general, of course, later on was saying, oh, I can't wait for that countess to come back and pick her up. You know, it's, mm -hmm. so you know he's, he's mm -hmm. on to something, but he's also too polite of a host. Yes. You, must, yeah. you, can't just, you can't just get rid of the guest, you know, but he knows yeah. there's something just really off with her. Has, I mean, obviously no mm -hmm. clue as to the extent of the craziness and of course, the doctor is poo-pooing everything at that time. Oh, all she needs is something to get her blood up, which he was right on target. He was right on target <laughs> with that analogy. Just had the wrong idea. Give her more port and stuff and, and meat. And no. Uh... <laughs> Oh but, you know, it's quite natural that Peter Cushing would be onto something. Mm -hmm. He's Van Helsing. Of course he knew. Of course. That. Of course he knew <laughs> something. Cushing. He's the man, that's for sure. He's the, He's the guy. <laughs> Which I guess is something else that even as a young person, I loved about this film, because not only did you get the more sensationalist aspects, but you also got Peter Cushing and mm -hmm. all, the, all the traditional things about Hammer that we always loved. Are you ready to talk about a favorite scene, perhaps? Daphne, would you like to go first? Sure. My favorite scene was when Carmila was just finishing up with Mademoiselle Peridot, and the guy walks in, and she looks up, and she has that blood all around her mouth. And it's just such a strike. All the colors there are really striking, and the look on her face and how she just kind of pulls her hand across to clear it off. I, I really liked that scene. I thought that was a, a great scene. Mm. And thanks for asking yeah. me first, because I had to have some backup, some backup favorite scenes, because just in case someone took, took one. Well, that never uh, happened this show. We never take no. favorite scenes from each other, do we, Al? <laughs> 
I'm notoriously known to take out favorite scene because we never discuss it ahead of time. Do you think maybe yeah. we should discuss it ahead of time? I, I don't know. No. But, um, I, Daphne, it, it's quite funny that you've chosen that scene and you'll find out why when I get to what's left of mine. <laughs> oh, no. So, Whitney, what, oh my uh, gosh. have you got a favorite scene? I'm going to yeah. go ahead and jump to the ending as mm -hmm. you know, because of the conflicted feelings that we have about Carmilla Marsala revealing who she is and then her eventually, you know, meeting her demise. What I really loved was the painting, the portrait when it was just going in these phases of decrepit state, showing the skull, showing the teeth, you know, it was like a Dorian Gray effect. I, I loved mm. it. I, I think that's that's my favorite thing, among other things, but I had to state that, especially I think anyone who is creative as an artist would, would love seeing those layers and of things happening with not only you know, art, but with knowing that that character is gone, that you see, you see it dying after she's gone. Oh yeah, I'm particularly fond of that as well. I yeah. also think that's a great choice, Whitney, because I loved how there there was so much life and youth and vigor in that painting. Yes. Um, and then to see it just kind of slowly melt away, and mm -hmm. and I like how it it slowly melted away. It wasn't like it all it just quickly melted you know it was like you yes. saw it slowly decay and yeah. that was really cool and it, like when emma's dad said oh now i can see the evil in her eyes i'm like no you can't there's no <laughs> evil in those eyes give me a break <laughs> steve you really you sir you're really tempting fate having me go before you you know you, yes i, I am always, <laughs> alistair and i are notoriously known to go for as, as i think both you have the quieter scenes or smaller scenes. I always like it with Renton. I, somehow I was always drawn to him figuring out what was going on. And the mm -hmm. scene where he, where he and the doctor and he's bringing in the garlic flowers and he's sitting in there and they're having this nonverbal communication and he's doing the little motions and stuff like that to different people, you know, like was that the garlic flowers being a good thing and the doctor keen on that. I thought that was really nice. And the doctor who was thinking this is all superstition at first, realizing there might be something to this goes over to the jewelry box to find the cross mm. to put around her neck and i just i love that that scene where it was just a non-verbal communication between the two and they basically set up this protective barrier for emma and i want to tie in there's a scene that later on that was my favorite cinematography scene and that is when carmilla comes in there to feed opens the door and I love it how they show her eyes seeing the cross on the neck and then they automatically zoom out so you got the garlic flowers all in that same shot you know where you, where they, where you can see the garlic flowers in her perfect form and then and you see her reaction I just like how they set up the angles and things like that and her reaction and all that part so there's those two things together like my favorite scene it all involves the same stuff the cross the garlic flowers and the ongoing things with the garlic flowers that you brought up in that wonderful synopsis of Gretchen, of course, wanting to leave because take them in, take them out, take them in, take them out. Oh, make your mind up, people. You know, is what she's thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great scene, and I can enthuse about it because you haven't stolen mine. I thought for a moment you were going to. Shall I go with mine or what's left of it, Daphne? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, Carmilla's attempted abduction of Emma and Emma's rescue. I love this scene and it's not, it's probably what you would call a kind of climax. It's not so much a quiet scene, but it happens directly after the bit that you described, Daphne. <laughs> what I particularly love about this scene is Carmilla fading away while the dagger passes through her body and shatters the bars mm -hmm. behind her. So she moves back and then she stands in that kind of trance-like state. Obviously for technical reasons, because they're about to do a super imposition shot. It's obviously a very simple shot. It's two laid over the top of each other and then one is faded out. But I think it's all the more elegant and effective because it's just so simply done. 
poetic and really stays with me. The other thing I love about this scene is Carmilla's reaction to the crucifix-like handle of Carl's dagger when he holds it up. Now, if this was a much cheaper film, you can imagine that she'd bare her fangs and she'd hiss and draw back. But instead, Ingrid Pitt makes a really interesting acting choice. She just looks infinitely sad, almost as if she's on the verge of tears. She has this look of resignation on her face when she draws back. And it's almost a look of shame as well that she's being repelled by the symbol of good. And you see the reluctance in her, I think. There's still a lot of humanity in Camilla Kahnstein, but because of what she is, what she's become, she can't help it. So we're in the clear, Steve. <laughs> I, I want to tie in with both mm. yours and Daphne's scene with something that's in between those two parts. And I think what adds to her sadness, she had Carl beat. It wasn't until Emma started to pray oh, that yes. it broke to see the trance. Mm -hmm. And that's when Carl's able to pull it up. And I think clued into the, the, the sadness was she realized Emma realizes that she's a monster because she saw her kill mm -hmm. the governess and screamed and, and realized this oh my lord, she is this creature of the night. I think the sadness was that she'd already lost Emma. Even more deeper sadness when she realized it was totally over then. And I mm -hmm. really think it was Emma that saved Carl. Yes. You know, already saved yep. each other. Mm -hmm. That's very and, good, and, yeah. And for a film which I would say is so much about female empowerment, I think that's a very appropriate thing. I was going to have a tie-in too. We all have tie-ins. We do. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Great minds. <laughs> What was your tie-in with Whitney, Steve? I was just saying the funeral procession's going by and she hears them saying the stuff. So they, that was setting up mm -hmm. the prayer by Emma because it shows mm -hmm. how she reacts mm -hmm. to it and it just, he's repulsed by it. So I think when you look at it as a film structure and the way Roy Ward Baker edited and filmed it, it just ties in so nice with these little nuances that you can pick up. And this movie did do some things where it spelled out for you certain parts by showing a couple little flashbacks I thought were, you know, kind of unnecessary. Some of them were like, yes, we were there just like a half hour ago or whatever. We know that is what happened. It wasn't too bad. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to say thanks for bringing up the what you did there, Stephen, because I feel like that also goes back to the vulnerability that um, Carmela showed and her, you know, humanity as a vampire, what was what you said, Alistair, about what's left of her humanity. And she's dying. She's losing a chance at love. And then on top of that, the person that she loves, seeing her in her true form and being disgusted by it and praying to God that she's protected from this person who loves her, you know, ouch, that hurts. Mm -hmm. And I, I was really taken by that scene too, because it's a rare response that you see in movies with the vampire, the cross. And there was a lot going on there with how she was feeling. And then the next scene or shortly after that, when she's walking back to her uh, crypt or her coffin, she's walking very slowly and like diaphanously, you know, back, but she's, she's lost, you know, like she's, you could tell that she's sad. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good scene, yeah. Um, Whitney, you said um, you had several favorite scenes. Do you have another one that nobody talked about yet? Oh man, there, there's a few, no, but I um, like putting you on the spot. No, no, no. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and say, okay, as much as we love the color in Hammer films, I loved the shot where Camilla. It's almost controversial, but like, but it was where she had her gown removed and it you didn't really see anything but just uh, the shadows yes. in the darkness. I thought that was just, again, just seeing female form, powerful yeah. form, powerful, just essence, just being and it's just and it's dark. You don't mm -hmm. see the color. It's just you just see that the presence is there. And mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. um i was just gonna say it made me you know when you compared it to color i was thinking oh it's the absence of color like as yes. soon as you said that it's like this total black in this form is really it, it is yeah you're right striking yeah yeah i love it because she's backlit and that's mm -hmm. one that if, I, mm -hmm. if it's the scene i'm remembering that's when she's seducing the governess yes Tater yes. mara's character and it's just she has her turn the light out and then she disrobes. And, and that's what I mean about being a very good scene where it's appropriate, where you're not doing it for 
the exploitative purposes, like we were talking about earlier, you know, leave it to your imagination. And maybe you're seeing it with an artist's point of view, because I'd like to think that I yeah. am as well, because the lighting is just so perfect. Um, she's backlit, but also just enough from the side that you just see the curve of her stomach. Yes. And the curve of her breast. And it's mm -hmm. just so beautifully photographed. You're absolutely right. That's a real standout. Mm -hmm. So shall we move on to final thoughts, guys? Are you, you happy with that? Mm -hmm, sure. Okay. Uh, Whitney. Well, like I said, I haven't seen this until recently. I And I'm glad I did. No, I, I definitely think it's worth watching again. It's just uh, there's so much more that we could really discuss. And I'm sure the mm. next time, if I choose to watch it, there's there's probably going to be things that I'll probably see and understand better the next time. That's why I love being introduced to something because I feel like I can go back and revisit and and then watch things again, maybe see it from a different perspective. But no, mm. I love this because of a lot of the things that we've discussed here. Yeah, sure, it's Hammer. Yes, there's vampires, but just getting down to what's in the mind of Carmilla, what's going on with her and Emma, and then seeing all the female presence here. Yes, we see Peter Cushing, but it's not about him. It's it's about Carmilla. It's about her relationship. It's about her as this predator. It's about Emma. And how are these dynamics really feeding because of her as a as a predator and the other as the victim almost absolutely steve the um the man in black or whatever the heck he's called i just want to say i felt like he was a totally useless character because it added nothing to the movie and only took away from the themes of the movie and i thought it was totally unnecessary that all the scenes that he was in could have been just removed mm -hmm. and the movie would not have been affected negatively at all if anything i think it would have made it better i mean he does nothing to move things the countess could have done it all herself you know Absolutely. same thing she did later on again anytime i watch a movie i'm always looking for characters and when i'm done like did that character provide anything or do anything and again mm -hmm. he provided nothing and the sad part is, is you lose that precious time where you could have developed other things just to add to what you've just said, I love the fact that the female characters are so foremost in this movie, and I love the power and agency that they have. But you've set up this family or this mm -hmm. colony of powerful female vampires, but then they still have to introduce this patriarchal character mm -hmm. <laughs> who we are supposed to believe is in charge of everyone. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a massive misfire. I just don't mm. think that's needed. It isn't in the original novella. And I think that Camila and her mother, if indeed she is her mother, have plenty of power all on their own and certainly didn't need to be reporting to the vampire CEO or whoever he was supposed to be. He reminds me of an evil Rowan Atkinson, which is probably not the look they were really going for. I, I would agree. And I'm glad that you um, brought it up because um, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But I think it's a nice example of something that I have really appreciated being able to talk with folks about movies and learn myself is to really be able to see the male gaze and um, the white gaze in movies. And mm -hmm. I know people have commented on it on our podcast before about, you know, that wasn't the intention of the filmmaker, things like that when stuff comes up. And I agree, but that's my point. You know, you don't see it because this is made for you to look mm -hmm. at through your eyes. And so you don't see it, but it is there. And so I think that's an excellent example. And maybe in the original script, he had more, I don't know, but for what they ended up having in the edited cut, you're absolutely right. He doesn't have anything to do. And so I wonder, do we, we have to have a patriarch, you know, for this story? Um, probably. Maybe, you know, and so it's just interesting also to look at it that way. I know some people don't want to have anything to do with that, and that's fine because you can watch this and enjoy it. But I think that that's really opened up my eyes to a lot of stuff that's going on in the movies that even if it wasn't intended by the storyteller, people interpreting it and the window that it has on society at that time is very important to look at. And uh, I love exploitation. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I love this stuff, but it's also, I think as art, you know, reflecting something about humanity. I really appreciate that you pointed that out because I can't always put my finger on that. And so being able to talk about it with folks just adds so much, so much to my enjoyment of it. So I agree totally. <laughs>
I enjoyed the film. Besides those reasons I brought up that could be correct. I, lo- I love the cinematography. I love the um, the wardrobe, which we never really brought up, but the um, the wardrobe was very nice in period piece and kept things moving along. I really wish the Countess would have had a little more action. Again, if we were to cut out some of the scenes with the one character we talked about, they maybe could have fleshed out the Countess a little more and maybe the backstory. I think that would have been a boon to it. It's an enjoyable movie, and it's one I think that everybody that enjoys Hammer films should watch. I don't know if it's going to be my favorite Hammer film that we've seen so far, but it's going to be in the upper half. I like this movie a lot. A lot of what you guys have said, I totally agree with and appreciate you bringing out and making me think about. My biggest final thought was what I had said about you're pointing out that there was this character that really wasn't even necessary, but Mm. existed and kind of took away some of the acknowledged power of these characters. Mm. And I really like spaces where we can talk about those things from people who really enjoy movies. And I feel like this is something that, that brings up those things. And I really love that Roy Ward Baker his direction in this, and especially now knowing a little bit more about the tension that you were talking about between the producers and the directors and the story, because there is a lot going on in this uh, visually, as well as in the story that Ward Baker was able to bring out with other people. And that that's magic to me. And I really appreciate that. It makes me think about how amazingly he did Quatermass. So I, I guess I just shout out to Roy Ward Baker. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, nice. Quite rightly, too. It's no coincidence, I believe, that the most popular Hammer group on Facebook is called The Hammer Lovers. I don't know, Whitney and Daphne, if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with it. I'm giving them a (laughs) shout out because they've been very kind to Steve and I. But just the name, The Hammer Lovers, because this film's status is so high in Hammer films, but also in vampire cinema in general, its influence is enormous. And my personal view is that this is down to the lead. Just to mention two other films that Steve and I have discussed, there was Raquel Welch in One Million Years BC and Martin Beswick in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And they may have been the female stars of those films, but they had to share top billing and equal screen time with a male Mm co-star. Whereas in The Vampire Lovers, Ingrid Pitt is the solo star of this film. And even Peter Cushing just really bookends the film in an extended cameo appearance. Simultaneously, Ingrid Pitts also plays the main villain. But unlike the female villains in The Gorgon and The Reptile, she's in almost every scene. And because of her character, she's able to interact with the others with an ease and a naturalness, which none of Hammer's other monsters, even the Count himself, ever could. So as the star, the anti-hero, the romantic lead, and the monster... The Vampire Lovers is a powerful vehicle for a remarkable actress like no other Hammer film ever was before or ever has been since. So some people might say that maybe she's a shade too old. Some say that maybe she doesn't possess the acting range of maybe someone like Kate O'Mara. But Ingrid Pitt is Carmela Karnstein. And this is just an incredible performance where she literally carries this film herself and she has solidly embedded herself into the psyche of horror cinema. And I love her. Mm, Me too. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) She's awesome in it. And there's, there's one thing I wanted to share real quick, what I loved about this movie. I think it goes back to my love of Captain Kronos. is the vampires being different in the traditional lore. The vampires are able to be out in the sun. The vampires have some weaknesses, but not other weaknesses. And I think I like that. And I think it goes back to this story coming out about 26 years prior to Bram Stoker's. What Alistair said, I think what's also remarkable is we all think about Dracula, Christopher Lee, and he's only in it for you know a small amount of the time because it's mostly Van Helsing. Where in this one, it's, it's the reversal, where you're, you're basically following the antagonist the whole time instead of the protagonist's point of view. And I love mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have we anything else to add? I could talk with you guys forever about <laughs> it. So it's probably best not to ask that of me. <laughs>
Quitney? I honestly feel like a lot of you guys have said some of the things I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's absolutely fine. I do have one question for either one of yeah. you. Who, who wants this question, Daphne or Whitney? I'll let you decide right now because it's, it's going to be a quick answer question. It's not a hard one. Uh... <laughs> I'll take I'll, Daphne spoke first. We'll give it to her. Oh, darn it. Um, Daphne, Daphne I, I didn't bring my dice with me, so I need you to pick a number from one to six. Oh, my gosh. Are you sure? You sure you don't want to do this, Whitney? This, this uh, is when they pick the next one. Uh, three. <laughs> three. Okay. If I remember Good correctly, number. we Good know number. number one is Dracula, number two is Frankenstein, number three is The Mummy, number four oh, is science fiction, number five is um, prehistoric. prehistoric, and number six is The Experimental 70s. So we're they going back under the wraps. <laughs> Fantastic choice. Yes, I Yay. really feel like doing another Mummy movie next time. <laughs> Guys, we've kept you for a long time and we really, really appreciate it. Uh, we know that you're both enormously busy with all the different things that you do. And we're just incredibly grateful. You've been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, you guys. It was so much fun. And I, it's just really been a good time. I love talking to all yes. of you. And again, thanks to both of you. I learned so much from having these discussions and I just appreciate that. Me that too. you guys are out there and that I found other people to talk about the storky stuff with me and um, <laughs> that I've, you know, made some friends. So I so really great. appreciate being able to talk with, with all of you guys about it. So thanks. Thank Definitely. You. There's a never ending cycle of learning something, learning something different and new. And not only is this just horror, but it's a vehicle for learning history um, as well in film. And I love it. Totally. Totally. And um, I can't wait to hear the next Hammerama. So take care. Yeah. Thanks, Stephanie. Bye, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you, guys. You guys take care. <laughs> you too. Bye, Whitney. Bye, guys. Have a good one. Bye. So, Alistair, they gave us number three, which we know is The Mommy. What movie are we going to do next? While we're talking about the number three, Stephen, I'm going to mix it up a bit. I think we should go for the third film, which is... The Mummy Shroud. I really, really like this one, and it's it's probably one of Michael Ripper's best ever Hammer performances. And for listeners, I've never seen the, the Mummy Shroud. This will be my first time watching it. I'm looking forward to it. And as always, thanks for listening. And send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook post. Um, we've been getting feedback from various people as time goes by, and we really enjoy reading it and looking at it. It's it, it makes both our hearts overjoyed to hear that people are, are seeming, seem to be liking the show. At least the people are responding back. Absolutely. I mean, we do this because we enjoy doing it. And if other people, A, actually listen, and B, even enjoy it as well, then we are completely fulfilled. So join us next time when we beware the beat of cloth-wrapped feet. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.